What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being. We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias here again with... Tosh Robinson. And Keith Depps. And once again, we are joined by a Sylvester Stallone scholar and gymnastics martial arts enthusiast, Matt Singer. Welcome back, Matt. Thank you. It's great to be back and referred to as a gymnastics martial arts enthusiast. I've been waiting well, my whole life country? to be introduced that way. What, what? I cannot imagine why. Why exactly that nomenclature? What is there some specific uh, martial arts <laughs> something that involves gymnastics that you're a fan of or an enthusiast for? Not that I can think of, but if you can think of something, <laughs> I would love to hear about it. <laughs> I mean, the only martial arts gymnastics thing of any kind I can think of is Jim Cotta. Oh. And I'm not. Do you have any sort of association with that? Oh, Jim, what you say? <laughs> oh, I look forward to that. What, what is the, the country in which in which gymnastics martial arts is popular? Parmistan, obviously, the nation, the great nation of Parmistan. I hear their chicken Parmistan <laughs> is particularly delicious. <laughs> <laughs> oh man uh we were discussing a little bit off pod about about the, the troubling lack of availability of a, of a high quality blu-ray or yeah there's no yeah there's high- no hd there's no there's no blu-ray there's no hd print i've had film theaters come to me and say you know like we'd like to you know would you want to come introduce it if we can get a copy of it and i'm like absolutely not i don't care for that motion picture <laughs> Please don't ask me again. But they persist. And it turns like no one can find a copy of it. Like, theoretically, you could show the old DVD, I guess. But they're like, it is unavailable for consumption in a theater, which is a a travesty, a a tragedy of cinema. But um, I mean, if you're not watching it in 4K, are you going to be able to experience either the thrill of gymnastics or the kill of karate? Not the way it was intended by Robert Klaus, the director of Enter the Dragon and Gymkata. You make a great point. I think for the good of us all, someone needs to really take charge here and solve this problem. Wow. It's really an interesting career, isn't it? Looking at at his filmography, because that's (laughs) what are we doing? We can't do this. What you said doing? save it for the we should be recording this. <laughs> Welcome back to the next picture okay. show, a Jim Cotta podcast I, I, about Jim Cotta. I could feel I could feel I could feel like <laughs> Genevieve Kosky somewhere just being, what are you doing? 
please find some some direction here. This is where we make connections uh, between Creed Three and Jimkata, correct? That's what I was told when I agreed to do this podcast. Both I'm not sports doing it. movies. We're not doing it. I'm, I'm drawing the line. Right. We're, we're talking about boxing here. We're not going to talk about uh, <laughs> gymnastics, martial arts. Fine. So last week we discussed Rocky Three, a second sequel in which Sylvester Stallone's underdog Southpaw is now a rich, pampered heavyweight champ and has to return to his roots in order to triumph in the ring. In Creed Three, Adonis Donny Creed's roots wind up returning to him. Much like Rocky Balboa and Rocky Three, Michael B. Jordan's Donny is an obscenely wealthy and highly regarded world champion with a supportive wife, played by Tessa Thompson, and a deaf daughter that he tends to closely. Donnie has retired from the ring, but he's pulled back into the life when Damian Anderson, an old friend from his group home days, resurfaces after a long prison stint. Creed feels responsible for the incident that landed Dame, as he calls him, in jail and short-circuited his career, and Dame, played by Jonathan Majors, appears to hold that opinion too, turning to Creed for the resources to revive his boxing ambitions. But despite his guilt, Creed doesn't initially grasp the depth of his friend's resentment, and their dispute eventually has to be solved in a ring in the middle of Dodger Stadium. We'll fight it out amongst ourselves after the break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I spent the last seven years of my life living out my wildest dreams. Bianca. Rocky, my dad, this was built on their shoulders. Hey, my man, can I help you? Let me get an autograph. No, nah, I ain't signing an autograph, but you get off my car. You don't remember me, huh? Damien. How long were you locked up? 18 years, bro. Just got out last week. Glad to have you back out, huh? I know I've been away a long time, but I got myself in shape. I still got gas in the tank. Come by the gym. Thank you. Curious what happened with you two? I didn't tell you. We was like brothers. I was the best, though. Man, I never got a chance to prove that. That's cute. I know what you're doing, Donnie. You don't owe this to do nothing. Damien's fighting the world, and he's trying to hurt people. I vouch for you. You think you mad? Try spending half your life in a cell. Why does somebody else live your life? I'm coming for everything. You threatening me? Okay, so I'm curious. I kind of know what everyone thinks about this, but Tasha. So I really want to know Tasha first. What did you think of Creed Three? I think this film may have been a little oversold to me as like the second coming of Christ plus a bag of orgasms all covered with uh, chocolate uh, ganache. So I, I think I may who be. Sold you, who sold you to do it like that? 
I, I, a bunch of people who saw it early uh, just really, really praised it to the skies. I more or less thought it was okay um, mm-hmm. in terms of I really am enjoying listening to Michael B. Jordan talk about his directorial choices and, and bringing in his influences, especially bringing in anime and how much he absolutely adores anime and the particular kind of ways of uh, like a certain brand of anime uses to express heartfelt emotions through stylization and people hitting each other or or zapping each other or you know hadokening each other however you wish to put it but for the most part i thought it was uh okay as a boxing story and okay as a a family drama okay to maybe not great as a family drama what really got me what what hooked me and and kept me was the energy between uh, Jordan and, and Jonathan Majors who I mean Jonathan Majors is really having a year uh, between this and everything he's doing with the MCU he's he's very front and centered and when he first appeared in the movie I was like that might might be a little burned out on this guy who's just spent so much time on screens lately but he really brings a soulfulness to this role that makes the resentment very understandable, like like palpable, but also layered. And both of these men just give performances that I think enliven this movie past the the relatively simple structure of Rocky Three. Basically, you know, it's it's more or less guy is on top of the world, guy gets beat, guy needs to find his hunger and come back uh, and be on top of the world again. It's it's a very simple logline. I think a lot of what makes Creed 3 work for me is in the performances and in just kind of some of the the grace notes of the story rather than in some of the the bigger broader strokes. With the outcome of the the big central fight uh never in doubt and the outcome of the first central fight never in doubt, it just really becomes about how you do it as people more than anything else. So I ended up thinking this movie was entirely okay. And when it's great, it's great because of the people, not necessarily because of the material or the approach. Yeah, I'm pretty much with you, Tasha. I really, I really love the first Creed. And yes, agreed. Uh, I, and Creed 2, I think, is also very good. I thought this was fine. You know, it is there's a lot to like about it. I think Jordan's a really promising director visually. I think he's obviously really good with actors. And I think he and Majors and Tessa Thompson are all, all really good, but I thought just as a story, it's really, it feels, you know, not streamlined enough. It, it's kind of clunky and, and, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really quite, you know, move the way you want it to, not to get uh, ahead of ourselves, but I feel like the narratively convenient death in this movie feels a lot more forced than the one in Rocky Three. I don't know. I wanted to like, I wanted to like it more, but I, but you know, it's it's not a huge disappointment, but but I think it's it's the weakest of, of the three Creed films so far. Matt, you're grimacing. You like this one? I did. Yeah, I, I guess I probably liked it the best out of everyone here. I mean, I think that some of the complaints that have already been mentioned are totally fair. I think the reason that I really enjoyed it, uh, like Tasha, was I just was a very engaged by the Jonathan Majors, Michael B. Jordan relationship, their performance together, their work together in the ring, out of the ring. I just thought they were very, a very well-matched pair. And, you know, all the stuff involving those characters, 
with maybe the exception of the way some of the flashbacks are deployed and the the pace at which they're deployed, Mm -hmm. I thought was really, I just was very interested in that relationship. And is it, you know, is it uh, surprising or shocking where it goes? No, absolutely not. But I mean, this is, I I don't really go to a Rocky slash Creed movie to be surprised or shocked. Like I, to some extent, (laughs) I'm going to see these, you know, well-tested uh, motifs and themes and ideas kind of get, you know, updated and sort of played with one more time in a new context. And I felt like I got exactly what I sort of came to get out of it. And I I do not think it's as good as the first Creed, which I agree is is definitely the best of the three and probably is the best movie in the whole uh, franchise minus the original Rocky but I, I, I would certainly say this is, at, to me, it was as enjoyable as Creed Two, and maybe a little bit, a little bit better for me. And I guess the reason I would say that is like I did, you know, as as someone who you've you've called me several times like a Stallone scholar or whatever, which I never would claim <laughs> that title. Sure, sure, sure. Gymnastics martial arts enthusiast, that title I would claim. <laughs> but a, a Stallone scholar, I mean, I would never like consider myself that, even though I I do find him an interesting filmmaker and actor and movie star, especially. But like I would have thought I would be going the whole movie like, where's Rocky? Why isn't Rocky a part of this? Like there should be Rocky, you know, like almost like a Poochie. It's like a Poochie thing. Like, you know, where everyone should be talking about Poochie when he's not on screen. And I really actually felt like they did a, a really successful job of sort of making a Creed movie where other than maybe one or two minor moments, it did not feel like he was missing or there was an element missing. And I did sort of like the way that it didn't feel like a Rocky sequel at times. Whereas Creed II very much felt like a Rocky sequel, like for better or worse. And this one, I felt like, yes, it has a lot of the same, you know, the the expected tropes and and stuff. But I don't know, I did feel like Michael B. Jordan was kind of, you know, like living up to the all the scenes in that gym where there's a big sign on the wall that says like, build your own legacy, where I felt like he was kind of at least attempting to put his stamp on this, on this franchise. And I appreciated that about it. I gotta say, I, I I cannot think of a single place in this narrative where Rocky would have fit. Like, this is fundamentally a story about two young black men who came from a, a very poor and troubled background and ended up taking different paths through what what amounts to an accident of fate. And they ended up in different places when they could have ended up in the same place. And then they have to reconcile with that, both of them. One of them has to reconcile with his anger and the other has to reconcile with his guilt. And I am really glad that they didn't try to make room for an old white guy to show up and and tell him how to do it, you know, to tell either of them how to navigate their, their lives or this very, very personal relationship that they have. I think that this series has definitely moved beyond Stallone. And inserting him back into it over and over, like as as a mentor, like if maybe if this movie had a scene where he showed up and tried to give advice and Adada said, like, this is something you don't know anything about. Go away. It would have fit narratively, but it it wouldn't have felt good for lovers of this franchise or or lovers of Rocky in general. I, I think this was exactly the right amount of Stallone for this story, which is to say none. Yeah, he's essential to the first movie, and it feels like you kind of shoehorned into the second one, although I like some of that. But yeah, you're right. It's it's fine without him. It has we, to move we, on. 
we we could we could maybe learn what the sign is for yo though. <laughs> <laughs> we could have learned that from from Uncle Uncle Rocky. Um, so it turns out that Adrian's name sign is just the the sign for yo with an A stuck in the middle of it. <laughs> yo. So I, my I think I maybe somewhat on the lowest end here on this one. I I was bored uh, by this film for much of the way. I think it's I think the pacing of it is really turgid it kind of it lacks juice i like i like the juice and uh, the juice juice is good and this does not have i'm making an snl reference that i no one's gonna get it bat 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 of course gets it but maybe nobody else is gonna get the i like it i'm just trying juice. to avoid making jokes about how juicy these men are uh yeah so it's like it's it's i, I this film doesn't have the energy that I think it needs to have. And I think it really, really badly gets bogged down by the backstory part of it. And by the, by the, just the agonizingly slow reveal of what actually happened and who this guy was and what, ha- what you know, what, ha- what, what the, what happened at the end of the, uh, of this fateful scene at the liquor store. I felt like all of that was just the classic example of Noel Murray's band, the backstory piece that we ran in the dissolve. It was just like really hit that, and I and I think, you know, to me, the movie really popped with Jonathan Majors. Like Jonathan Majors was what this film is missing for the most part. I mean, like that kind of energy that he almost kind of has a sort of rascally quality to him. I mean, there's a certain amount of pain that he is carrying that his character is carrying into this situation. But there's also just a lot of like there's braggadocio and in, in, in sort of a trolley nature to him as well. There's something kind of uh, he's a wild card, and I think the film really needs that desperately and more of it and less of a lot of the stuff that I think slows it down. I think it finds its, itself in the finale, which uh, the f- final fight is quite entertain- entertaining. You know, it's expected. It's the obligatory thing, but it's it's well executed. And I think I think there's some, you know, solid directorial chops at play here from from Jordan, especially for a first time filmmaker did. I, I just could, I was bored. I, I, I have to admit, I just, I, I was not as engaged by this film as, as I, I wanted to be, which is kind of the issue I had with Creed two, but I was, I found that it's a lot of the drama and in that particularly involving Dolph Lundgren's character to be, to kind of get past sort of the problems with that. Um, I, and I missed sort of the dynamism that uh, Ryan Cooler brought to the first Creed. It just, it needs to have, punch for lack of a better word (laughs) (laughs) wait is that boo for the opinion or for the dad joke for the dad joke yeah the opinion is fine he's allowed to not like it but the the punching thing i just i oh i didn't realize i was making some sort of uh, a pun there Mm. (laughs) somehow makes it even worse yep i mean i yeah I can see. I mean, I, 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 we definitely agree about the the flashbacks and how they're they're deployed. I do think they kind of stop the momentum of a movie that doesn't have a ton of like propulsive momentum to begin with. And I sort of understand. I think what he was, what Michael B. Jordan was going for with the way that they're sort of so carefully like stretched out in terms of like it's not just one big chunk at the beginning it's like we keep having these little glimpses and drips and drabs and I think the idea is that you know and I think Adonis even kind of talks about this in the movie is like he has basically buried all of this trauma and this and when Dame returns to his life it's basically like bringing it back up over and over again and he can't you know he's worked so hard kind of to avoid this 
and avoid uh, all of this stuff that happened. And now it's like he can't escape it. And so the movie can't escape it, too. So I think like I I get that. And I think it's that, that's a totally like valid way of approaching it. I think I, I do think, though, we as the audience are sitting here going, we know exactly what this story is going to be. And it basically is what. I at least expected like there's not a lot of surprises there so the way that it's sort of stretched out it's like when you get to the end here it's not like there's some shocking revelation it does just seem like he's kind of telling the story we expect in a way that is yeah it does kind of prolong it in in a way that maybe isn't as sort of uh satisfying if what you're looking for is the uh the punching as as Scott said I guess the thing that I found you know, I did not find this movie turgid or boring. I guess what I found really engaging and interesting was just the the Dame character and the way, you know, I already said, well, I don't expect to be surprised by a Rocky movie or a Creed movie now. But on the on the flip side of that, like, I did feel like my sort of expectations for this sort of character, the Dame character, were kind of subverted a little bit in that, you know, especially by Rocky Three, the villains in these movies became you know, very two-dimensional, you know, like Clubber Lang, we talked about him on the previous episode. He's just all intensity and rage, and we never find out where any of that comes from, or we can infer certain things, but there's not a single scene where that even sort of brings any of that up. And here, you know, the, the Dame character we spend a lot of time with, we see his apartment, which looks a lot like Rocky's apartment from the very first Rocky movie. You know, and he has stuff hanging on his bathroom wall, just like Rocky did. You know, like in this movie, he is kind of the Rocky figure. And that sort of automatically makes Adonis the Creed figure. And so I found that dynamic and playing with that very interesting. You know, someone already said, oh, I, you know, I, the ending is a formality and all that, which is totally fair. But what was different for me was I didn't entirely know who I wanted to win this fight. Like, I was Hmm. kind of rooting for Dame uh, at a certain point. You know, there's like one or two scenes right before the fight where they sort of, I think they almost make a tactical error and kind of betray the character. And he goes kind of full heel for a moment or two. He becomes like a little more overtly like, I'm going to beat you up basically you know and i i've been tricking you all along and he almost does like an evil laugh Mm -hmm. and like i almost feel like if you take that stuff out you wouldn't you really would not know who necessarily you would want uh to win that fight and that was the stuff that that was the juice scott that was the juice he's got his his beef is legit i think yeah (laughs) with creed i mean I, i think i think creed does have a pretty solid reason to feel pretty guilty about a lot of that stuff i mean that so yes uh there's that and then there's the, then there was kind of there's an interesting kind of sensitive side to it the masculine side that i guess maybe we'll we'll get into connections but i did want to share related to that the a, a tweet I, I read today from a critic named uh barry hertz from toronto who said uh who said uh men will literally <laughs> men will literally drag airplanes on their backs in training montages <laughs> instead of going to therapy uh and i feel like that is I feel that is really good and it's very fa- fascinating to me to kind of see that element of just of reflection of um that takes place of 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 uh, what men need to do to resolve uh some of the emotional problems they they carry on it almost makes you think too that if this film could either eliminate or severely limit the flashbacks, it, that it would ha- it would be something. It would be tighter. 
I mean, I, I don't. I hate to give advice. I mean, I'm not. I'm, I'm not a filmmaker, but it's. A, but it does feel like that's where. I'll, I'll just say that that's where the film gets dragged down, and that's where it. Fe- you feel where you feel really stuck in the mud is when you really kind of keep circling back to this night and to this moment and to this to this past, and it just and, it, and it's not, you know, and it the way it sort of teases all that stuff out. It's just like. I mean, well, you know, Rocky Three is not even ninety minutes long. This is two hours, you know, and you feel it. You feel Rocky Three is so hundred minutes long, but yeah, your point point taken. But yeah, I actually Rocky Three is hundred minutes. Rocky Four is the one that's under ninety minutes, and it's and oh, okay. most and like ten minutes of it is Rocky Three just replayed. <laughs> I, I do think though that the opening flashback is some of the best, one of the best scenes in the movie. Though it's almost like. If they kind of like just confine it to that again, like yeah, like you, I'm not a screen, I'm not a screenwriter or a filmmaker, but but that's the, I was really gripped by it at that point. It's just every time I returned to it, it became it became an issue. Yeah, those two teenage boys, uh, Thaddeus J. Mixon and Spence Moore the second. First of all, they are uncanny ringers uh-huh. for what these two men would later look like. It's it's so easy to look at them and see the the men that those characters are going to be later. To, like to see these recognizable movie stars in their faces. I'm presuming and I'm hoping that they this wasn't a you know a, a CG effect. Like they, there wasn't <laughs> yeah. any trickery involved. They just cast people who really not only look like them but get their mannerisms right you know the uh the kid playing the young version of michael b jordan gets the smile right you know the the little sort of shy smirky smile that that creeps across his face the kid doing the young version of uh, jonathan majors does that uh kind of poochy thing that he does with his lips when he's like feeling contempt in a in a scenario like there's just a lot of little mannerisms in there that are really recognizable and they have really good chemistry with each other as friends i would heartily support a version of this movie that just lets that whole scene play out so here's what's happened and then communicates the Adonis can't get these moments out of his head, uh, like through flashbacks that are just like a couple seconds long, literally just, you know, we see him experiencing distress and then we just get this tiny little flash letting us know he's reliving it again and again and again and he can't get out of it. But I, I think Matt's exactly right in that the way it plays out is as though the movie is withholding information that's going to be some kind of like big twist that's going to be a reveal that's going to change the dynamic somehow and that never happens you know we we eventually see what we've already been told happened and by the time we see it on screen it's like yeah i know you you told the story why are we why are we waiting and seeing it play out at length so i i agree that it's both a pacing issue and a kind of a structural issue i like the theme of the trauma resurfacing and and being becoming inescapable but i just i think the way the story is told kind of hampers the movie and also i just kind of think that the moment uh I just kind of think that the moment Dame reappears, knowing what that story is and like knowing why uh, Adonis carries around this guilt becomes important because there's so much nuance between them, you know, and there's so many things that they're sort of trying to play off in their persona that they're that they're where they're pretending 
They're pretending things are okay. They're pretending they're still old friends. They're pretending nothing has changed. And then it becomes clear that that's not true. And Dame is pretending he doesn't need a handout. He's pretending he doesn't need help. But we come to see that that's not true. And he's pretending he's less resentful and and jealous and bitter than he is. And we come to see that that's not true. And all of these things come out in their performances. But like knowing what the source is from the start, I think, would make that all more trackable and more powerful instead of playing it like it's something that we need to discover and like we're supposed to be shocked when we get there. So one one thing that is curious to me is sort of the general relationship between the Creed franchise and the Rocky franchise. And I think one of the things that the Creed movies seem to be fighting against is kind of the pulpiness and the sort of vulgarity of the Rocky movies, particularly... Well, anything after the first one, really, but like, like there is a, a an attempt to kind of do something a little bit more serious, a little more muted, a little bit more character driven than what we saw in uh, in those original Rocky movies. I mean, do you all have the same kind of read on it as as I do? Or I mean, this does really feel like a Rocky three remake, just more sophisticated, doesn't it? Yeah, well, we'll find out in the connection, certainly. Uh, but do you uh, mean but, more just like sort of generally the the more uh, grounded tone of this than, yeah, than the Rocky sequels? I think sequels? so. I mean, I just think there's a way of just like, okay, we've got to do this. You know, we're part of this kind of world that Stallone has created. But, you know, I mean, we talked talked about about um, the absence of Stallone completely from this one and, and this need to kind of create your own legend or whatever. Uh, I think that's been something that's been happening from the start, even with the first Creed of just like trying to figure out how to how to be a Rocky movie without being a Rocky movie. I do think the second Creed 2 definitely felt more, which Stallone did have a writing credit on, did feel much more like a like a Rocky uh, sequel in terms of that pulpiness or that vulgarity or however you want to describe it. I mean, that was a movie about a guy trying to avenge his father's death by boxing the son of the guy who killed his dad like and this movie is much more like a a a two-hander character drama between these two men who have this incredibly uh intense connection and this this very complicated relationship and past and you know like the rocky sequel of of creed 3 would be like well he's He's Clubber Lang's nephew or something like that. There would have to be some sort of familial, you know, it wouldn't just be he's just a guy that grew up with Donnie. There would have to be a, a, a grander design to that tapestry. So, yes, I do. I do think that there it, it is trying to do something at least different from the the Rocky sequels, especially the later Rocky sequels. I mean, we already talked about some of the ways that it's different. Like the the, the pacing, you know, it's a two-hour movie versus by Rocky Four, like it literally is like an 85-minute movie where the first 10 minutes are Rocky Three, and then there's like six montages. Like there's like there's the, the number of like actual scenes with a beginning, middle, and end with dialogue in that movie are tiny. It's it's kind of unbelievable when you watch it today. So this is very yes, it's absolutely very different than that. And again, like and the treatment of the the villain is so different. Where I'm talking about, I'm wonder if he should maybe I'm rooting for him in that fight. Like Yes, there are some interesting things that you can sort of read into the Clubber Lang character, but I, I I have a hard time going. Man, I hope 
I hope Clubber Lang beats Rocky. He's, you know, take that Italian <laughs> stallion. Like that I don't and I don't think that we're really meant to in that movie. So that's a that's a, a difference as as well. And I do think like I haven't watched Creed 2 you know, in a couple of years, I would be very interested to watch it and this back to back and just see how different or how similar they do feel. Because at least in my mind, they feel quite different. There was never a moment in Creed 3 where I thought, you know, I really want to see Adonis get beat down or Adonis really deserves to get beat down or Adonis really deserves to lose this fight. But I'm, am I alone in having a, an experience towards the middle of that fight of, of wondering whether Adonis was going to throw it? Like there was there was a point for me, I think it was Scott was talking about not necessarily being positive who was going to win that fight. I was positive who could win that fight, but I was not I, I would not have been entirely shocked if Adonis had made the decision that like what he owed his friend was to give him closure in the sense of winning this fight and remaining heavyweight champion of the world like. The question running throughout this movie is, what do I owe this guy? Uh, I escaped and he didn't. But so much of that is, you know, about systemic racism in America and not about me personally. Like, how far do I owe my success that I worked hard for uh, to this guy who wasn't there and was only there for me in childhood? Like, ultimately, I I did kind of wonder if he was going to throw the, f- you know, not full on throw the fight, but like. I don't know, lose the eye of the tiger, lose, lose the hunger, like, because he didn't necessarily have a hunger to beat Damien the way Damien had a hunger to beat him. And if he had decided to to let that fight go, because it was what Damien needed, that would not have been a surprising result for me thematically. Am I wrong? Am I, am I alone here? I think what does off makes that impossible is the fact that uh, Damien is, you know, plays dirty to get there. By hiring someone to attract attack Victor Drago, who can then fight Felix, is, is you know, it is, it is, it, it's a cheat. And well, he's a dirty fighter, too. He's a dirty fighter with, with Felix in, in the ring, too. And, like, I, I was, uh, you know, I think one, one thing, one, you know, this is obviously a long movie already, but I, I felt, like, a little short-changed by um, all the drama about, you know, uh, Creed's responsibility for Felix, you know, getting really you know, beat hard in, in a fight that he shouldn't have been in in the first place uh, in the ring. And then, like, by the end, Felix and his family are, are by, you know, with, with Creed's family. Like, you know, all was forgiven in a scene deleting her or something. I'm not sure. I think maybe the most mesmerizing sequence for me in the entire film is when Dame is fighting that first fight and he's fighting dirty. And it's it's clear to me, at least in that sequence, that he doesn't really see anything wrong with what he's doing. Like the smile on his face after the the face elbow business seems just almost innocent, like just very open, like the the glee of a little kid who's winning a, a checkers game. You know, it it's not I am going to vindictively cheat and hurt you so I can go murder this other guy who I'm angry at. It's I'm winning. I'm winning the game. And the fact that he's doing it by fighting dirty, just, you know, it's it's kind of how he came up. It's maybe the result of 18 years in prison and, and doing whatever he had to do. And that choice, like the way Jonathan Majors plays that sequence to me is one of the most interesting things in the film and maybe one of the most daring because I don't think that that 
scene plays him like an irredeemable villain. It plays him like a, a poor sportsman and a very dangerous person to be in the ring with and a dishonest person, but not as evil, more as just unaware of how how what he's doing is playing to literally everyone else around him. And as the mood of the fight changes, as everybody who's watching him gets more and more horrified and upset with what's going on, and he's still grinning that like little kid who winning a checkers game grin. It's just so clear to me that like he's not fighting the fight that everybody is expecting him to fight. He's not having the experience anybody thinks that he's having. And maybe that's one of the reasons Adonis is so taken aback and horrified by that that fight is like he's seeing a different side of his friend, but he's also seeing something he just really doesn't have the tools to fix at all. Yeah, the the idea of, you know, Adonis out of guilt or whatever sort of uh throwing the the final fight or sort of letting dame win that 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 hadn't crossed my mind but it's in, it's an interesting sort of alternative uh universe to ponder and i think keith is right in that the way that they structured the movie where he sort of like it kind of reveals his evilness in that you know in those one or two scenes right before the the big fight sort of makes it so I feel like they couldn't have done that. But but if they had sort of tweaked those scenes or removed that part, it's an interesting way they could have gone with it and, and not necessarily an unsatisfying one. But then perhaps you couldn't make Creed 4. You'd have to make Anderson 2 or something like that. Like it's almost <laughs> like he becomes – he really, really does become like the – other protagonist in a way if he's gonna you know and it's like almost like the redemption of of dame or something like that which i mean isn't given the 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 uh the journey the rocky movies have been on is not an outlandish concept for uh a, another one of these movies i mean i would fully expect if there was like a creed 4 you know f- that there, there would have to be like the apollo-esque face turn the way in Rocky in Rocky 3 Apollo becomes his buddy like I would it would seem inevitable that uh Dame would sort of become his trainer or something you know like you these these things almost write themselves at this point yeah it, 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 they, you can train him to fight Tommy Gunn's son yeah we go. <laughs> <laughs> yes I've been, no. I've been just holding this Rocky 5 reference just it's been in the bag Rocky Rocky Jr. Milo Ventimiglia has to come and challenge him I mean <laughs> oh, come no. on that's the only acceptable ending here oh my god craziness well uh let's let's uh, leave it at that we've got tons of connections uh to make here between creed 3 and and, and rocky 3 there's so- something about that second sequel they just have to do it a certain way uh so we'll do that after the break is there something else you want to tell me You have got to open up at some point. I don't know what else to tell you. What I you need to understand to what is what going on. What you want to hear? Some sad story? You trying to feel sorry for me or no, something? No, I don't want to feel sorry for you. I want to understand you. I want to know what is going on There's with you in my house. There's nothing to talk about. I don't want to talk about anything. I've been trying to forget it. It's dead. Leave it. Leave it. Let it lie. I'm talking about that shit no more. So now it's time for Connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. And uh, one of the things they have in common are <laughs> the, the certain important character deaths of, of uh, people who are in 
poor health. Uh, we have uh, Mickey, uh, Rocky's trainer, and then we have uh, Marianne, who is uh, Adonis's mother. Uh, so how, how does how does how do these uh, narratively convenient deaths play out, Keith? You know, I brought up the idea that that it works better in Rocky three than in Creed three, but the more I think about it, like they're both pretty kind of awkwardly telegraphed in, in both movies. You know, I, I'm not sure. Maybe it's because, I don't know, maybe it's just because Bridges Meredith looks so much closer to death and what's your shot. You know, it feels like it comes like we're out of the blue and Mary and, and Creed dies and the whole business about her other kids not not being there. I, I don't know. It just, it just felt a little bit like this needs to happen now to motivate Creed for the final act. Well, maybe Mickey's death you know, coming earlier makes a difference. I'm not sure, but you know, I, I'm not exactly, exactly sure why. I did find the funeral sequence in Rocky Three uh, quite moving in a way that I maybe this is it. I, I found that whole scene like really quite moving, and you can see the impact it has on Rocky. Whereas in Creed Three, the death is sad and it's well played by by both Michael B. Jordan and Fletcher Rashad, but then it's kind of forgotten. You know, if, if I'm if I'm unless I'm unless I'm misremembering the movie. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it comes back up. And it also feels maybe a little too narratively convenient in that it robs Adonis of any chance at closure. Like uh, he has his own reasons to be angry in this film, uh, you know, to, to complicate all of his other emotions uh, that he's battling with. He deserves to be really, really angry at her for cutting this person out of his life. Uh, this this person that needed him and cared for him and, and took care of him and was an important part of uh, his life. She just consciously made the decision to not pass on Dame's letters and to make him think that, you know, Dame wasn't reaching out to him. And t- she robbed Dame of like and potentially a, a really important part of, of the rest of his youth. As a result, she like destroyed this relationship. And Adonis doesn't really get a chance to be mad about it. You know, he he walks away from her, but then he gets no closure because you can't necessarily expect closure out of somebody who's dying and somebody who in their final scene keeps calling him by his father's name and and just clearly really isn't all there. And that to me was a little frustrating. It's perhaps very realistic to acknowledge that sometimes your parents do terrible things and sometimes you're not going to get closure and sometimes lives end before all the loose ends are wrapped up. But in a movie this programmatic to do something like that to this guy and then say, and you're never going to get any resolution for it or any apology. She's just going to say, yep, that's what I did. And then Keel ever dead. <laughs> Rude. <laughs> you know, as I'm listening, there's another connection here, which is that Mickey has been withholding information from Rocky, too. He's been he's been setting him up with these fights where he can easily win. He's been protecting him, you know, that, you know, that there's a symmetry there as well. They are both very. Oh, you're right. They are both very narratively convenient. I will say, the telegraphing of Mickey is, a, I think, handled a little, a little more gracefully, just because it's like, well, he's just acting like he's unwell. He looks, as as Keith said, he doesn't look like the healthiest guy, and then he's sort of like, okay, uh, you know, he's like grimacing uh, <laughs> during the thunderlip sequence. It's my heart. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But in 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 uh, Creed three, they literally have a scene where they're like, "Now, mom, you know you've been having these strokes, 
I know. That, so they, that this po- couldn't possibly come up later at an inopportune time a in the story. gigantic glass of wine. <laughs> you should be drinking that gigantic glass of wine because you just hey, had a stroke. Hey. Yeah, and I think... Gigantic glasses of wine are good for so your So that, I mean, when, when that scene is going on, you're like, oh, okay, well, she's going to have another stroke. She's going to die. She's like, it, it's impossible not to predict all that. I think the other big sort of issue is... Um, I think the Marianne Creed character is a very interesting idea for that character. But I, I don't know that she ever really had a ton of really, like, memorable scenes throughout all of these movies. You know, like, whereas the Rocky and Mickey relationship, we can think of all these moments that they had. And, like, the... And just so, like, when when that character dies, that really, like, that's a real gut punch. And I'm sorry to try to out do scott's terrible dad joke from before oh what but i mean it really is like you really feel that where in as in this movie it's you know it it's not uh, it's it's sad but it's like that character has not had the same sort of impact on the overarching you know story of the overall franchise in the same way and so it does feel more like well if we 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 have this person die it will serve the story and the motivations of Donnie and will, you know, and will further this as opposed to being like, well, this is a very emotional uh, sequence into and of itself. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, she dies for the convenience part is that she's martyred for his, for us to feel more sympathy for him in the sense that like her character is responsible, is so responsible for this ruined relationship that he has with this you know this dude like you know if 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 creed if, Ad- if adonis had said you know what i i need to cu- i'm gonna cut this person out of my life i'm gonna ignore these letters i'm not gonna I, i'm not gonna pay attention i need to move on with my life i can't be held down by this guy if he had made those decisions for himself then we're really testing the audience's sympathy for him in a serious way for the fact that it, that he was sort of betrayed slash, slash protected by his mother kind of makes kind of that's that that's the real convenience here mm. i think well, let's, I mean, let's be real about that. He did actually make the choice to not ever go check up on his friend, to not yeah, communicate with his friend. He way. could have gone there. And he, when he makes the apology, I, I think it's very telling and adult that he does not bring up, like, he, he has already said, I did not get your letters. He doesn't try to insert, it turned out my mom was hiding them all along into the narrative of his apology. He doesn't try to deflect it. He just says, I didn't come and see you and that's on me and I'm sorry. So, you know, good for him. But at the same time, like he, he didn't ignore Damien's letters, but he did ignore Damien. He did make that choice. I'm kind of interested. I mean, this is another connection related to uh, that relationship about masculinity and about feelings and, and about how the, how these kind of men relate to each other um the whole thing about being you know ben rather <laughs> dragging a, a, a jet than uh than going into therapy there's a there is an interesting kind of a therapy angle particularly in creed 3 but you also mentioned we also mentioned it in rocky 3 too about about these feelings being out in the open and, and how they need to be resolved and in what's what the interesting kind of turn in creed 3 is that creed's wife uh played by tessa thompson is she doesn't understand, doesn't understand why he's not being open with her. And when, and then there's a certain point where it kind of clicks 
for her and she kind of understands like oh you need to actually do this like the, like you need to like in order to kind of like solve some of these problems that you have you you need to go and fight again and and i support that idea that's kind of interesting i mean considering how deep into feelings and and, and almost therapeutized thoughts this movie is that that um, a lot of things need to be work, worked out in this really physical way Sort of linking that back to the deaths thing, I think one of the reasons Mickey's death works more emotionally than Marianne's is because it's so tied into the theme of Rocky Three about aging and eventually having to give up on on certain things because your body's going to break down. Like Mickey giving up the ghost is heavily foreshadowed and and ties into like Rocky's own feelings of you know, getting weaker and people coming up behind him and wanting what he has. With Marianne's death, it just seems a lot less part of the the thematic structure of the movie. But to the degree that it does tie in, it ties in in that sense of the question of like, who you open up to about your emotions when you open up, whether you're you're capable of opening up, because it kind of feels like her death is part of what pushes Adonis to the point where he can actually talk about what he experienced. You know, his his sense of loss and his sense of grief are big enough that he reaches a point where he does have to express his emotions. I just think it's funny and kind of enjoyable that in both of these movies, it's their wives that need to, to talk them out of being a big w- emotionally withholding, like stolid hunks of rock. And, you know, both of their wives are just like, you have to come out and express these emotions. But neither of them do it in a like a soft or therapeutic kind of way at all. Like neither of them are being emotional women about it in the uh, broad stereotypical sense. They're both just merciless and they're, they both come at these fighters as fighters themselves. You know, they both come at them with just like, you need to shut up and get your, your crap together uh, or you're going to fall apart. Like they, they neither of them quite slap their men upside the head, but they do so verbally. And it turns out to be the right approach with, with both of these guys it's like the only way they can express emotion is by shouting it uh, after having been <laughs> shouted at, you know, after after being clubbed upside the head with what they're doing wrong, they can express emotions in a way that amounts to fighting back. I mean, both movies have almost the exact same scene where after withholding this burden, the you know, the the boxer finally opens up to the wife and the wife says, thank you for, you know, being honest with me. Now go beat that other guy up. I guess the difference <laughs> is in Creed 3, like there has to be like a second scene like that. But it's now between the two boxers, between the two men. Like it's inconceivable of Rocky and, and Clubber after their fight having a little way to go champ kind of uh, sequence. I mean, they wouldn't need to. There's no reason to in that movie. But in Creed three, like I'm really glad that scene is there because the the conflict doesn't feel resolved actually, despite there being a winner in the fight. Until they have that scene after the fight in the dressing room, the whatever, and they and they talk about the whole thing. Like that's that's where it all uh, gets resolved. So it's almost more touchy feely, for lack of a better term, than even uh, Rocky three was in that way. Yeah. And, you know, despite the the brief question of whether Adonis was going to throw the fight for Dame's emotional health and, and safety and security, 
I kind of felt like that the fight was probably foreordained, but it also wasn't really the drama. You know, the, the drama was going to be, how do they talk to each other afterwards? What do they say? And, and how does Dame take it? Because yeah. that was going to be always going to be the, the big question. Like Adonis was going to come to him and try to make amends in some way. But the question of like, what Dame would say in response was maybe the biggest mystery in the movie for me. Like the the biggest, I don't know how this is going to play out, and I'm I'm engaged in finding out how it plays out. Do they really just need to exhaust be exhausted to have to be able to have this conversation? I mean, hmm. could they have found some other way? Could like running against each other on a beach and then talking in the <laughs> locker room later about how they feel like they just need or having a really tough workout i mean do they really have to uh punch each other in the middle of dodger stadium to get to that point they, they briefly thought about uh just like racing on the beach but then they realized neither of them had an appropriate crop top to mm. wear and they had to scrap the layering <laughs> thigh socks. sizes who has the bigger thighs or something <laughs> oh bad um uh, uh so what else what else what else about these uh these two films well, I'll bring up a comparison that it kind of is addressing the the question that you just asked, Scott, which is this this movie is just so much about guilt, about, mm-hmm. you know, guilt over being a success, guilt over being rich, guilt over being black in America and having stepped up like past the level where that is a constant threat, you know, a, a constant existential threat. We talked about race to some degree in in Rocky Three, and I feel like Creed Three takes a similar approach in that nobody ever gives a speech about being black in America, but it hangs over the entire film. You know, the the racial dynamics of a boy spending eighteen years in jail for possession of a firearm, you know, which he did not use to hurt anybody. We don't know what his priors were, but we we know that he didn't shoot anybody in that sequence. He just owned an illegal gun and he ended up spending 18 years in jail for it. You know, he he had his youth and his promise and his future taken away from him for defending his friend, albeit defending his friend in an illegal and questionable way. There's still just you know, uh, the incarceration of black men in America is an idea that hangs over this movie. The question of like rising up out of poverty as a young black male and becoming a, a rich success story and then trying to decide what you owe to other people hangs over this movie. So, but again, nobody gives a speech about it in terms of race at any point. The the words aren't said but the feeling is there. So I, I think it's interesting how much both of these films carry about like the weight and understanding of race in America without without giving into like cheesy uh, crash style explanations where people give speeches about it. I've been just sitting in not even things that I had ever thought about um, before, because I'm almost like as we're talking about the movie and I'm thinking about how much I really liked, even despite some of the evil things he does, like how much I like that Dame character and was really rooting for him in the movie. And I'm sort of picking apart my own feelings about him and why that was. And I'm and, and comparing it to Rocky three and the Rocky movies in general. And, you know, I was thinking about, you know, obviously if this movie is going to have anything besides a boxing match at the end, obviously it's like a training montage. And I was trying to think if there's another training montage in the franchise where we see the opponent training, 
you know, the training montage is such like a mythic thing for Rocky and now Creed in these movies where we watch him getting strong now, gonna fly now. And, you know, like that's the moment in every movie where, you know, it's like the signal that like, you know, that it's about we're about to get the big fight. But it's also like that's like like a, a, a special thing just Rocky gets. You know what I mean? Like if the if the opponent shows up, it's like a brief fleeting glimpse. We don't. Ro- we Rocky don't f- oh, you're right. Yeah, Rocky, Rocky three 4? gives us a ton of clubber. Yeah, okay, uh, never mind. I don't know what I'm talking about. I guess I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I take it all back. Dude, the emphasis, the emphasis on Rocky. I just think but, I, but, I I just think in this one, uh, you, like you're seeing, you're right. In Rocky Four, really, it's like the the dichotomy between the two kind of them, of, right? Exactly. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. One, one is this kind of machine tool, right? Representative, and of, he's taking of, steroids, uh, and Rocky, who I'm I'm right, sure Sylvester Stallone has never taken steroids tech. in his life ever. <laughs> he's yeah, lifting farm <laughs> implements and climbing mountains and stuff. You're right. I forgot that one, but I don't know the the the, the fact that. Again, like this one, you know, and, and it's not showing, well, this person is doing it the right way and this person is doing it the wrong way, which is how Rocky Four really plays yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It's that these are like two equal opponents and it's not necessarily this one is is training the right way and this one is training the wrong way. It's more like these guys are both like ridiculously awesome athletes and they're both in incredible shape and they're both going to beat the crap out of each other. I guess when I was watching it, I maybe was even subliminally going like, I don't know who I would rather uh, want to see win here. I don't know. Maybe it's less novel now that you've pointed out that I was wrong about most of it. But (laughs) I think in my heart, I was right in a more in a more ecstatic truth levels that Werner Herzog would talk about, you know? (laughs) There is a, a class. You often element. talked about the Rocky movies. Uh, Herzog <laughs> would definitely have something to say about these movies, and uh, you know the the symphony of murder that is uh, the boxing ring. But there's a, a really interesting class element in the contrast between training montages. I guess in both cases, maybe more so in Creed Three, though. You know, there is a big difference between the guy doing push-ups alone in his. Uh, you know, very, very crappy, original Rocky-esque apartment, and the guy who has access to a private airport and a private plane that he can pull around uh, to to show how strong he's getting. But that, you know, to your point, like, that's another way in which he is like Rocky. You know, like, he's the one, uh, to draw another connection, he's the one who's on the beach in Southern California, right? He's the one who's... uh, Climbing up what I don't know what he's doing, climbing ropes. I don't I've never I've never even seen a gym in my life. So it's un you know, it's but he like, yeah, he's the one who's doing the more Rocky esque activities, you know, in that uh training montage. So yeah, it's another This feels like a like a fodder for like a circa 2012, 2013 hot take. Actually, Dame is the hero of Creed three internet piece. I think there's also a kind of an interesting element in both of these films around the the cult that forms around the uh, enemy character, villain character, protagonist, whatever you want to call them here. Yeah, with with both with both Clubber and and Davis, like where where these guys come from. And I think the really clever answer to that is success. You know, um, as soon as the we don't really spend any time on how Dame gets from living alone in an apartment and 
you know, training on the the mercy of Adonis being willing to let him use the gym to suddenly having a a beach party full of hangers on. But it's just so easy to tell yourself that narrative. You know, he he succeeded. A whole bunch of people wanted to party with him afterwards. Like that's that's pretty simple. With Clubber, it's the same kind of thing. It's like as soon as he started climbing up the ranks, he makes a big deal out of fact that like he trains alone, he works alone, he doesn't need anybody else, but he still needs people like in the ring, you know, people to to give him water and and give him a rub down. He ignores the guy that is trying to pretend to be his trainer. He's like, you know, I don't need your advice, basically. But that's that's a common thing that practically everybody in the fight scenes in these movies do. The uh, the moment of your trainer tries to tell you something and you're like, no, I've got this. I've figured out what's going on. Uh, is It doesn't really matter what side of the ring you're on. You're going to have that moment with your trainer. You know, the side of the body, like that little soft spot in the little below the ribcage side of the body. That's 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 where you got to hit. He's figured it out. He's figured out this. Figured <laughs> out where on the where where the weakness is. He's going to strike, and it's that's going to it's going to be all over. That's how it works. Or just or just hit somebody in the arm repeatedly. <laughs> I'm so glad that my my work does not involve being hit in that soft place over and over and over by 400 pound men. That's the classic spot for Rocky. Loves the body blows. That's that's where he gets. That's where he rattles people right at right at the right at the foundation. Shakes the foundations by. Uh, beating people in the in the in the abdomen well it helps um, when your opponent it. in the as and all these movies do, do, appears not just to understand never... the concept of blocking not just doesn't block but like doesn't <laughs> it's almost as if blocking is illegal i think in in creed 3 it's a little better and uh they, they do occasionally block and in fact like jonathan majors has this very interesting way of blocking punches that i've never seen i'm not a boxing <laughs> expert outside of rocky but uh it's a little better in Creed 3, but yeah, like watching Rocky 3, it's like, do they know they're allowed to block the punches? Do they, because they just don't even have, they're they're not even, they're not even trying. It's just, you know, there's a lot of like swinging wildly and people and then, you know, the other guy going like this. Of course, this is a <laughs> podcast is an audio medium, but you can't see that I'm just whipping my head around. Again, when we're on YouTube. Yes, this be another one for the YouTube version. Exactly. That actually brings up, I mean, it it feels like we would be remiss in not talking about how these two boxing sequences compare with each other. And this is something I feel very much at sea uh, in as somebody who's knows little to nothing about boxing and uh, not a whole ton about sports ball in general. I'm curious how these fight sequences play to you, Scott, in particular, as somebody who may not be into boxing, but certainly is into like the back and forth of professional sports. What I think of the what the boxing sequences and and just the way they're shot. I mean, mean, the the Creed three final boxing sequence with its its very deliberate anime touches. I I still don't particularly care for that moment where Adonis is thrown across the ring and he backs up into a wall of of jail cell bars. Symbolically, (laughs) I don't like. Come on, man! Like, no, don't do that. But I do really like the the whole idea where the crowd falls away and it's just the two of them that's boxing cool. in an empty arena no, that, that, that was a cool touch for it, sure. it me but when the, it was the, like but it would like you realize that the time has collapsed so like they're now at round 11 right. it felt like a really good oh use of God. that kind of symbolic space there, there was actually some laughter in the audience when they re- when they was realized just how deep into the fight they were just like uh-huh. i love that i did like, like 11 so rounds much in. and I'll, I'll 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 tell you 
of this. I know nothing about sports, but I do know that I would feel ripped off if I went to a boxing match and uh, it was a typical movie boxing match where a bunch of punches are thrown and then somebody's KO'd in the first round. And it's like, oh, no, nope, that's it. Like that's Mike, Mike 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 professional boxing. <laughs> you know? those, are, those are like everybody would pay just insane pay-per-view pr- prices to see Mike Tyson knock somebody out within like 40 seconds. I but, did be um, fair. Gl- Glass Joe was not like the strongest opponent for him. I did wish that... <laughs> These guys get to go at it for for a long period of time. Like I like the acknowledgement that we don't need to watch eleven rounds, but it does seem important that they they spend that much time on it. I did wish that they had filmed that like in Dodger Stadium. I mean, because to me, it did not look like they were two men alone in Dodger Stadium. It looked like two men alone on a soundstage surrounded by green walls, and they they painted that all in. And that was one thing that um, I did. You know, like in terms of connections and comparisons, like, you know, the boxing match and matches in Rocky three. I mean, it looks like they're in a a real arena surrounded by screaming fans. And in this movie, you know, it does look a lot of the time like they're on a soundstage and they've painted the backgrounds in. And I, I, I was just thinking, like, this is a really cool idea when yeah, when it seems like they're alone in this place. But if they had gotten some helicopter shots or something that made it really feel like they really like we've done this almost like a magic trick and we've like they are actually alone in this place i feel like it could have been even more powerful i will say as someone who i already said you know i'm not a boxing expert or aficionado or anything like that and but having grown up watching these movies i was shocked when i watched a real boxing match for the first time and it was not like Rocky because I thought this was how it was <laughs> and I thought no one would be blocking and I thought it would be nonstop excitement and that is not what most uh, non-Mike Tyson boxing matches are like actually they're often nothing like that the one thing I will say also in, in terms of the boxing in both movies that I always liked about Rocky and I do like about the Creed movies is that they always have you know, recognizable figures or professional announcers doing the announcing, you know, like in this movie, you have Stephen A. Smith doing, uh, I think, a really good job uh, playing himself in that sequence. Um, Like they they always the, the Rocky movies, they always seem to take place in our world, in the real sports world, in a way that I think makes them just work better and feel more plausible and realistic, even when the boxing itself is implausible and totally stylized and over the top like the the attention to those details i think does bring a lot to the overall kind of fabric of the movie yeah yeah i mean to me i mean there's such a huge discussion to be had about what filmmakers want to emphasize in the way that they shoot boxing sequences because of course you know with these these movies there is still kind of like a rooting interest thing there's a thing of just like we want to see you know, our guy come back, you know, we want to see this, this really exciting bruising fight, but then you also, you know, uh, and you all want to, you want, of course you want angles that you would get that you, that you'd be getting if you weren't, you know, if you're actually in the ring rather than outside the ring, there's that immediacy to it as well. But then you look at a film like Raging Bull where all of the psychological torments in that film are carried over into the ring and the emphasis is on violence and just, you know, and brutality and, and, and it's not really about anything more than that, anything more elegant than that or, or more exciting than that. It really is just about, uh, about things being worked out on this, on this terrible violent stage. 
the irony of what you're describing is that the there's these boxing matches, you know, are they're scripted like professional wrestling, and yet when Rocky Three has a professional wrestling match, it is nothing like an actual professional wrestling match, and it almost seems like Sylvester Stallone thinks wrestling is real. Which is funny because he also made and directed and wrote a wrestling movie in which it also seems like he thinks professional wrestling is real, which is Paradise Alley. It's very, very bizarre. He both seems to understand the sort of like the the storytelling dynamics of wrestling. You know, we've even talked about like Apollo Creed turns face in Rocky Three, which he totally does and is so satisfying when he does it in the same way when that happens in wrestling. It's very satisfying when like a, a villain realizes the error of his ways and 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 becomes a good guy like that happens all the time in wrestling and yet when he does a wrestling scene like in rocky three it's just like bizarre and it's just like hulk hogan manhandling rocky and punching him and (laughs) beating him up and he seems to there's no apparently no script and there's no plan and it's nothing like an actual wrestling match ironically it's exactly like an actual wrestling match. Uh, Polly comes and hits Hulk Hogan over the head with a chair. Okay, that part is, you're right. That part is, you're right. That part is like a wrestling match. Polly, who we love, a lovable character, Polly. <laughs> Everyone's not, favorite not the, Rocky character, Polly. Polly, come Why on, he's, he? he's a, he's you know, he's just he's the uncle at Thanksgiving that <laughs> says horrible stuff, but you you know, he's part of the family. If Polly were still alive, his politics would his politics would be worse than Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> Hey, one one quick aside, uh, uh, um, uh, maybe a question for Matt more than anything else. I, I'm not as well versed in this as you are. Uh, to what degree was Rocky Three responsible for like further popularizing professional wrestling in the '80s, or was was this more of a convergence thing? Because I I know Hulk Hogan was you know huge around this time, but it almost was like he got huger after this. And I, I mean huge in popularity, not 390 pounds as he is in this film. Build, yeah, he's built at 390 pounds. I think he's, yeah, he's more yeah. like 300. Uh, I don't I don't know how much you can give credit to uh, Rocky III for wrestling, but you can absolutely give it credit for Hulk Hogan's uh, uh, rise because he was sort of a guy who was becoming um, more famous sort of regionally where he was wrestling. And then I believe he was told, like, not to take this job, and he actually, uh, by the wrestling uh, promoter, wasn't Vince McMahon. I think it might have been Vince McMahon's father, actually, although I could Um. be mistaken. But um, And he basically quit his job wrestling at the time and said, I'm taking Thunderlips, and it made him an even bigger star. And then he went and wrestled somewhere else for a little while, and he continued to sort of grow in popularity, and that's when... Vince McMahon brought him in to sort of be his new centerpiece and became like the Hulk Hogan that everyone knows now with like the ripping his shirt and all that jazz when he became sort of this like cartoon superhero wrestling guy for the uh, that was more in the mid and later 80s. But yeah, this this absolutely hugely raised his profile because he was he was Thunderlips in the flesh, baby. (laughs) We'll we'll have to get into... uh... To more of Hulk Hogan when we get into some of his classic yes, films when you pair, on this podcast. Yeah, when you when when you tackle Mr. Nanny uh, and pair that with uh, well, something. Until we do that, uh, uh, Rocky Three is streaming on Netflix, Prime Video, Paramount Plus, AMC Plus, and MGM Plus. And if you don't have happen to have any of those many services, it's also rentable on a variety of digital platforms and available on DVD and Blu-ray. Creed Three, you just see in theaters. I don't want to tell you. <laughs> theaters nationwide Um, we'll be back with your next picture show
Finally, it's time to recommend a film or film-related item that complements this set of episodes. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. I'm going to throw it, I'm going to throw it to myself on this one because boxing film, I'm boxing, there's no question that, I mean, in my mind, that, that boxing is the cinematic sport in terms of just turning out so many great movies. Uh, you know, Raging Bull, we already mentioned, you got a film like The Setup. Uh, you know, uh, there's one of my favorite John Huston films is a film called uh, Fat City. Uh, but what I kind of run out to recommend just for entertainment purposes is a little film called Digstown from uh, 1990. This is a Michael Ritchie directed film with uh, James Woods and Bruce Dern and Louis Gossett Jr. It's a, it's a sort of a con man comedy, you know, with, with boxing in which James Woods plays a con artist who comes to the, this boxing town of Digstown that's run by that, that, that's run by this nefarious character who's played by Bruce Dern. And he comes to him with this proposition, which, which is that he, he will have his guy, Louis Gossett Jr., fight 10 boxers uh, in one evening that Bruce Dern's character can kind of find within city limits to fight him. And they both... Are, they're both con artists in their way, and so they're both doing. So, so yeah, there's a lot of trickery involved in in choosing these fighters, and in kind of how everything sort of plays out in the ring. It is an immensely entertaining film. It is. It is. You know, James Woods is a tough, tough uh, fellow to uh, feel for these days, but but really at his best in, in this film, just is really sly and funny. And Bruce Dern is just is is malevolent, and Louis Gossett Jr. is just kind of a much more he plays a more straightforward character, but also is kind of in on the fun. It is a really hugely hugely entertaining film that has uh that ends is just so satisfactorily it's just a film that was was sort of orphaned was not really that much of a success in 1990 it has been hard to find it's available but it's been hard to it had been hard to find for a while but it's a film i always sort of treasured and uh i know it's an alan seppenwall favorite too if he's out i don't think i don't know if he listens to this podcast but i know he's also an endorser do you do you all know digstown have you seen digstown I have it. I've heard good things about it for for years, so I should oh I should uh, I should watch it. Am I, I it? Am, I, I am I the only Digstown watcher? I haven't seen it in a long time. I barely. I need to revisit it. Heather Graham is in it as well. Young Heather Graham. Uh, well, anyway, uh, it was you, also you can... a TV series. Um, briefly, really? Yeah. Well, in, in any case, I'm telling you, if you're looking for for some big time entertainment no, involving boxing and con artists, and, and James Woods when he was kind of really good and somebody you want looked forward to seeing <laughs> so right, then I, uh then this is the movie for you it's called digstown i've uh, got a correction a to the next picture show uh digstown the tv show was unrelated to digstown the film you introduced an error into my your next picture show tree that yeah, is sorry. incredible That's it for this edition of the Next Picture Show, but we'll be back next week. Uh, Keith, do you want to tell us about our episodes dropping March 21st and 28th? For our next program, we'll be watching and talking about two tales of bloody, unrelenting revenge. Inspired by the arrival of John Wick Chapter 4, in which Keanu Reeves' unretired assassin continues to carve wearily through skilled enemies from around the globe. That put us in mind of another tale of a tough guy out to right wrongs done to him, the 1967 classic Point Blank. Lee Marvin stars as a career criminal who is double-crossed by his wife and best friend and determined to balance the scales by retrieving the $93,000 owed to him. 
no matter who stands in his way. Directed by John Borman, the film brings a new wave flair to a classic pulp story and sets it all against the backdrop of California at the height of the 1960s. Then we'll move on to another borderline avant-garde action film with the latest entry in an increasingly complicated, always stylish John Wick franchise. For now, we welcome your feedback on Rocky 3, Creed 3, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha Robinson. I am the film and streaming editor at Polygon.com, and I am on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Keith? I'm a freelance writer for various publications like GQ, TV Guy, The Ringer, Vulture, and I do a, uh, a newsletter with my pal Scott Tobias, you might know from this podcast, called The Reveal. It's a reveal.substack.com, and by the time um, we uh, you hear this podcast, we'll be, we'll be deeper and deeper into our, our, our ongoing series where we watch all 100 out of the uh, Sight and Sound Top 100 films. Uh, special guest Matt Singer, where can we find you? I'm writing over at Screen Crush these days, screencrush.com. My Twitter account is at Matt Singer. I got a book on Siskel and Ebert coming out in the fall sometime. Yes, uh, we're all very excited about that. Yeah, that's going to be, that's going to rule. You can find me on Twitter at at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, You can find me at The Reveal uh, with Keith, and you can find me at The uh, New York Times. Uh, You can find me in uh, The Guardian, Vulture, and other fine publications you can find our absent co-host genevieve koski on twitter at genevieve koski and she is the senior tv editor for vulture stay updated on the next picture show at nextpictureshow.net and on twitter at next picture pod get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com slash next picture show and as always we appreciate your ratings and reviews on apple podcasts or where you ever listen to the show matt singer thank you so much uh for being part of this Show these these are long episodes. We took a lot of your time. I, but, I, I but didn't hear no bell. Your knowledge. I didn't hear no bell. <laughs> We're going the distance tonight. All fifteen rounds. You got that eye of the tiger there, Matt. I, I can see you the really hunger did. in your eyes. I, I can see I that you're was, never gonna get old because you're gonna the keep sad, punching. The sad part is I think I think we literally could have talked Rocky Three for at least another hour, <laughs> that, which is just incredible to think about. Longer than the film, we would have had a podcast longer than the film. Uh, thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Thank you.